You're listening to KEcast. I'm Andre Goulet. KEcast is a monthly podcast produced by Korea Exposé. We explore Korean society, culture, and politics and highlight critical independent voices you won't find anywhere else. Look for KEcast on koreaexpose.com. On this episode... In May and June, tens of thousands of women came together in central Seoul to call attention to the nation's rampant spy cam porn epidemic. They were the largest recorded women's rallies in South Korean history. Pre-Exposé Managing Editor Hae Young Kang joins me to discuss why the women are coming out to the streets. Hi Hae Young. Hi Andre. June 9th was the biggest women-led demonstration in South Korean history, and protesters hit the streets for two reasons. The nation's spy cam porn epidemic, or MOCA, and a perceived double standard in how police have been investigating the crisis. Heyun, just how bad is the spy cam issue in South Korean society? It's actually a difficult issue to quantify because of the nature of the way the technology propagates the content and the way it's consumed and reproduced, and also the secret nature of these spy cameras that are installed in God knows how many places. So there aren't clear statistics that indicate how widespread of an issue it is. Officially, we know that police have to deal with thousands of spy cam cases every year, especially in recent years. And most of the perpetrators are men and most of the victims are women. There's also a lot of cases that don't get investigated because they don't fit the qualification of illegal spy cam content. If you see articles these days, there's actually a lot more news about spy cameras being in public spaces, subway stations, libraries, banks, what have you. I think partly as a response to the protests, which got a lot of attention, especially among women. But also when I was growing up, like spy camera articles were around for, I guess, as long as I can remember when when I was a teenager, I remember reading about spy cameras. Yeah. And according to the Korean National Police Agency, 2014 saw an average of 18 cases of mocha reported to the police every day. And The real number of victims is, of course, going to be much higher. According to information released by the same agency, in 2016, 98% of offenders were men. And these guys record footage covertly on their phones or install secret cameras in places like bathrooms and changing rooms, then share the footage on social media and on porn sites. And I've read that it's common for women to cover their faces when they're using public changing rooms and bathrooms for fear of later being identified when the footage is uploaded. Is that accurate? I would say in general, it's not accurate. There's a lot of sensationalism um, attributed to the kind of fear that women feel. And I don't want to, and I don't mean that to cheapen the kind of fear that women feel on a daily basis because they do. Um, Maybe in recent months, because of the protests, people are much more aware of the threats of spy cam porn in daily life. But around me growing up, um, certainly, and even now, nobody I know is really wearing masks. That's not to say that the fear is not real. But I think it's important to know that, you know, you just don't know where these cameras are. And you don't even know if you are going to be filmed. And it's actually not 
realistic to expect women to be vigilant and scared every single day wherever they go. So part of this lack of wearing masks is because, you know, a lot of the times women don't know, but also it's not possible to be so scared all the time wherever you are. I want to talk about the sensationalism a little later on, but first, despite pornography being illegal in South Korea, spy cam footage is being distributed across Korean and international websites. And since it's officially illegal, porn must be kind of an out of sight, out of mind issue for a lot of Koreans. And I wonder if this might be one of the reasons that society's been slow to see the mocha issue growing into a genuine crisis. What do you think? I was kind of smiling when you said that porn is illegal, so it might be kind of an out of sight, out of mind thing, because it's illegal, but it's not like absent from people's lives. It's so accessible if you know how to find porn. So making it illegal doesn't actually mean that the laws are enforced and people are are having difficulty infor- uh, watching porn, right? So the Murka issue is not so much that it's an out-of-sight, out-of-mind issue. It's It has to do with the difficulty of enforcing porn in general. Because the way we produce porn watch porn and reproduce porn is very difficult for law enforcement to really track and crack down thoroughly because it's the internet. It's in subcultures. It spreads like wildfire if you want it to spread quickly. Um, It's very hard to control the distribution of this kind of content. And I think that's why the spy camera issue partly has been so difficult because of the technology that enables the rampant distribution and the law's kind of still narrow definition in catching up to the actual reality of distribution. And then the other problem is the actual narrow definition of how spy cam content is defined and what qualifies as criminal content. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about the uh, genesis of this movement uh, against the mocha culture. The spark for these unprecedented, massive women-led protests was lit in May when a woman was arrested for secretly photographing a nude male model. I think this was a colleague of hers at a drawing class at Hongik University, and this is Seoul's prestigious school for the arts. The woman was arrested the next day after the crime was reported, and it was the police's quick reaction and her arrest and the removal of her camera that really angered women who said that the same thorough treatment wasn't given in cases where the victim was a woman. What do you make of this attitude? And how clear is the double standard in how police investigate men's complaints and women's complaints in regards to the mocha issue? So statistically, it's hard to prove that there's actually um, gender discrimination when it comes to the way police approach Murka issues. Because most of the cases are actually, and as you said, like an overwhelming majority, 98% and even more of the cases every year are um, concerning female victims, right? And if you look at the actual proportion of male perpetrators that were detained for investigation versus the number of female victims, the proportion is actually higher among male perpetrators. So in that way, statistically, it's hard to prove that correlation, that police are discriminating and reacting more swiftly to the Hongik University case because the male was a victim. However, I've been talking to some experts and people who've been studying the law when it comes to spy cam porn, and they argue that 
there must be discrimination when it comes to Murka because of the culture in police agencies and because the culture that creates the majority of the victims to be women. So when you have the rare case when a male victim is at the center of the scandal, then implicitly police are going to have a bias. Implicitly, police are going to approach this as a kind of unique specimen. And that's where the bias may come from. And then another thing that's infuriating the woman is that a lot of the cases that women go to police are rejected. So the protesters' qualm is, The police is rejecting so many of these cases because they don't qualify as criminal content. And then you have this male victim and the female perpetrator, An, who is then put in front of the media and who is arrested swiftly. How is her case so visible in comparison to the thousands of other cases that are not visible and even rejected? So I think that's at the core of their anger when it comes to the Hongik University scandal. And to one of those points, uh, one of the organizing groups behind the June 9th protest, an anonymous collective known as Courage to be Uncomfortable, they released a press statement calling attention to how the treatment of the male Hongik University victim exposed the issues faced by female victims of Mocha. And their statement read, how the public reacts to female and male victims is widely different. While a crime against a male victim receives critical attention, a female victim's video is regarded as just another porn. According to the police's own data, of the almost 5,200 sexual harassment cases involving spy cam footage reported in 2016, 80% of the victims were women. So can we assume that South Korean police are a particularly chauvinistic organization? I think there is a culture of patriarchy. So I think in that context, maybe it's harder to understand how much pain the woman is suffering as a result of the pornographic content and how normalized this issue has become. And that that is actually the problem, right? Um, When a male um, becomes the victim, it's, as I said, it's something of a critical issue. It's unique and new, but women... Women being in spy cam porn, it's every day. It happens all the time. And unfortunately, among South Korean men, spy cam porn has become something of a genre of porn. It's become a matter of taste. You consume South Korean porn when you like something more, quote unquote, natural. I mean, to give a very short answer to what you said, I can't make any definitive statements about chauvinism in among South Korean police. I can say that it is male dominated and there are problems arising out of that. Women March for Justice, another organizing group for the uh, last couple of marches, stated that Women in Korea are always exposed to illegal filming. It's been a normal daily life for Korean women to be exposed to illegal filming anytime and anywhere and to deal with negligent police investigations, secondary harm, and the obscene expressions by the press. So is Korean press coverage of the spy cam epidemic especially lurid and exploitive? I think there are plenty of incidences where that is so. There's plenty of good coverage But there's also a lot that focus on the sensational photographs, um, women in bathrooms, their body parts, um, pixelated images from porn. Those things tend to be highlighted um, over the more important context of why this is happening and how we can denormalize this issue.
pivoting now to the protests themselves, the scale of the gatherings is really incredible. The first protest in May drew 12,000 people. You were there. Uh, massive protests in Seoul usually happen at Gwangwamun Square, which is a large public space in the heart of the city center, not far from City Hall and presidential residence, the Blue House. But this protest happened uh, at Heiwa Station in the Daehangno neighborhood, uh, a neighborhood known for its nightlife and theater. Tell us more about Daehangno. Well, that's actually where the Korea Exposé office is. So <laughs> it was actually pretty convenient for us to cover the protests because we just had to go to the office. But Hewa itself is actually a very historic neighborhood, and there have been protests in the past. It's been a site, popular site of protests, in fact. The democracy movements from university students in the um, 80s, labor movements, and even in recent years, I think... Um, 2016. It's a it's a very vibrant college neighborhood. The original Seoul National University campus was there. There's theaters, indie musicals, lots of young people, lots of makeup stores. It's a really fun place to be in and, and a beautiful historic one too. And I guess I was personally I was very moved that adding to this layer of history was the recent women's protests, which were, as you said, the largest recorded ones in South Korean history. Yeah, unprecedented. And you write in your recent piece at koreaexpose.com, my life isn't your porn, why South Korean women protest. These protesters refused to be interviewed individually. Is that right? Yes. Tell us more about that. So I think there are different layers to that. One is strategic in that they want to present a collective front. They want to you know, be united. They want to enforce the message that they're part of a group of women. And another reason that they mask their faces and refuse to be interviewed is partly as a symbolic protest against the exposure that's been forced upon them by spy cameras. Looking at some of the statistical evidence in your piece, you discovered that between 2012 and 2017, out of the nearly 30,000 male suspects investigated by police, less than 3% were arrested. Out of 523 female suspects during the same period, four were arrested. That's less than 1%. So I want to unpack what this means. Basically, although a lot of people are under investigation for suspected spy cam use, very few perpetrators are actually being charged. So do statistics indicate that there's actually little likelihood of legal consequence for filming someone without their consent? Or, or how do those statistics shake out? So... There's roughly 30% of cases that get legal punishment. So, I mean, 30% um, of the perpetrators get charged. That's off the top of my head, so I think you should verify that independently. In, in the majority of the cases, don't receive punishment. Spy cam is actually not a legal definition. Um, there's, a, an, there's a clause in an article about digital sex crimes committed by the use of cameras and spy cam falls under this category and you get fined a couple thousand dollars or um, you get imprisoned for three to five years I think depending on the severity of your crimes whether you've produced it or distributed it or or sold it or whatever the problem is most of these crimes are not easy to enforce legally because of the way the illegal content is defined First of all, you have to have a clear victim. 
And that's not easy to do in most bicam content because they're taking places in places like subway stations or banks. You might have people, p- pictures of photos of genitalia or footages of women's bodies that are clothed or their faces may not show. And so it's not easy to identify who the victim is. So there's one disqualification for you. Another qualification qualifier is that the spy cam content has to um, explicitly induce humiliation or sexual desire in another person that's watching it. This technically describes pornographic content and disqualifies a lot of the spy cam content where women are wearing clothes or they're just walking on the streets, but their privacy is still infringed. But because it's not explicitly pornographic, it doesn't qualify as content. That's why a lot of the cases get rejected. That's why a lot of the cases don't get charged. So there's a lot of talk about lack of legal enforcement and lack of punishment. I don't believe that it's police being explicitly discriminatory or not doing their jobs because they're lazy. The fundamental problem has to do with the way spy cam content is legally defined. This definition is too narrow. It doesn't catch up with the technology. As word began to spread that another march would occur on June 9th, images promoting the event on social media encouraged women to wear red to symbolize their anger. Posters and advertisements for the protests featured the iconography of unlit matches. Journalist Hewan Jung on Twitter, at Ali Jung, uh, shared one of the chants she heard at the rally. Those men who film Mocha, those who upload it, those who watch it, all should be arrested and face stern punishment. Mocha in cigarette packs, mocha in water bottles, mocha in car keys, mocha in eyeglasses, restrict mocha sales. And the tweet was hashtagged, Hewa Shiwi. You were there at that protest as well. What can you tell us about the energy on June 9th? Wow, it was um, scary. I mean, and I don't mean like in a bad way. It's just when you have tens of thousands of people in one place and these women are all yelling and they're all super angry about this threat that they had to experience in their daily lives it's incredibly moving and also you just kind of it really hits you how much fear was latent in these women's lives and I guess I'm saying these women but I guess I should be feeling it too because I live in South Korea I use the public transportation and I am also guilty of this complacency when it comes to um, spy cameras. I usually don't even think about it and I don't even think I should be scared of it because it's not visible. But yeah, it was it was incredibly moving. I was um, happy to witness it. The, the chance that Hawan at AFP tweeted, it's it shows how difficult and complex this problem is, right? On the one hand, you have to educate the public, especially the men, about why this culture of consuming spy cam as just natural porn is problematic. And then on the other hand, you have to change the police culture and the way they define spy cam. And on the the other hand, you know, you have the rampant sales of little spy cameras in cigarette packs or mirrors or watches, and you have to regulate that too. So from all different fronts, you have to make changes, and it's just not an easy problem. Yeah, the Moon Jae-in administration is nominally progressive on a lot of social issues, and his government has proposed regulating sales of hidden cameras, imposing stronger penalties against perpetrators, and providing a stronger support system for the victims of Mocha. Uh, And these kinds of proposals seem like a 
big step in the right direction. But do you think they go far enough? I think that the government can't be accused of standing still about this issue. They've definitely been more receptive and more conscious to the fact that there's a problem. The police are implementing a three-month crackdown period on platforms and spy cams, and, and the government has been very vocal about the issue, and they're willing to listen to the voices of the protesters. Is it a step in the right direction? Is it enough? That's a different issue. Unless they address this fundamental issue of how spy cam porn is defined and whether the law can catch up to the technology that enables this, it's difficult to say whether it's going to be enough. Would you describe the president as a feminist? Is Moon Jae-in a feminist? Oof. He certainly said he's a feminist. I think that he is more responsive to women's rights He, in that he mentions them more and he seems to be more proactive about it. He has certainly um, identified himself as a feminist. But look at his cabinet most of them are still men, right? <laughs> I have to. I think Kang Jong was the the foreign minister, um, but and and he said that he wants to create a more gender um, equal cabinet. But if you look at the ratio of the government, and this is actually more of a, a long term structural issue than just Moon Jae-in's fault, it's still very male dominated. Um, it's still very patriarchal. When it comes to LGBT issues, I know there's feminists who wouldn't agree that I am mentioning the LGBT issue in the same vein as feminism. But if there are readers who and listeners who, you know, believe that intersectionality is an important component of feminism, then Moon Jae-in doesn't qualify as a very good feminist because um, during his presidential campaign, he's stated that he doesn't condone homosexuality. The anti-MOCA movement seems to be gaining momentum. Is there another protest plans for the near future? There's another protest on July 7th, which is um, our videographer Eugene Do's birthday. So happy birthday, Eugene. She's going to be out at the protest filming on the birthday. <laughs> Do you have anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I think one thing to really keep in mind is that we call um, the Murka issue, Murka porn issue, but the contents aren't just about sex. That's the, that's the point that people have to remember and they often um, misunderstand. The contents don't have to be sexual. They don't have to be explicitly pornographic. We're talking about the privacies of women um, and their bodies being subject to surveillance. And they can be fully clothed. They can be um, exchanging money at a bank. They can be reading a book in the bookstore. So it's not always about sex. Actually, most of it probably isn't about sex. But they can be so easily reappropriated as porn, photoshopped, and created to be consumed as porn. Heyun Kang is managing editor with Korea Exposé. You can find her piece, My Life Isn't Your Porn, Why South Korean Women Protest, at koreaexposé.com. Heyun, thanks for speaking with KEcast. Thank you very much. That's your KE cast for this week. This episode was produced by Korea Exposé and me, Andre Goulet, founder and host of the Korea File podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Andre Mark Goulet for the latest updates on new episodes. Korea Exposé is an online multimedia startup featuring underreported and critical perspectives from Korea. Find new episodes of KE cast on iTunes and YouTube and at koreaexposé.com. Music on this episode's courtesy of Creative Commons. Our next episode will be released in early August. Until then, I'm Andre Goulet. 
Thanks for listening.